In today's episode, we're going to be talking about undergraduate research, URE versus CURE. Undergraduate research experiences, or UREs, and course-based undergraduate research experiences, or CURES, have recently become very popular among STEM disciplines in colleges and universities in the United States. UREs are typically limited to a few students and competitive. Students who apply for UREs are typically highly interested in research, high-achieving, motivated. Students work closely with faculty, postdoctoral researchers, or graduate students during a summer, semester, year, or longer. Cures are embedded in a course as part of the curriculum and typically only last for one semester, but may span two or more courses. However, cures may put a strain on the professor teaching the course because they need to oversee many students simultaneously. Benefits. Undergraduate research offers opportunities for independent research experiences in the field of study and professional mentoring. There is evidence suggesting that undergraduate research benefits students by preparing them to become scientists and the experience may retain students in the sciences. Furthermore, the results of an undergraduate research project may be published in a peer-reviewed journal with the students as a co-author. Today's guests will talk about the process and benefits of publishing. Mentors. What's a mentor? However, Lynn et al. 2015 believed the benefits of undergraduate research have been poorly studied and that positive outcomes may be due primarily to mentoring. They state that mentoring is essential for undergraduates considering careers in the sciences and one of the main benefits of undergraduate research may be undergraduates' close proximity to faculty, postdoctoral researchers, and other members of the lab who may help mentor the students. Mentors may serve as guides who orient the undergraduates and help them make connections among their experiences. They may also serve as role models, provide professional socialization, and facilitate the undergraduate's professional identity as a scientist. Mentor Benefits Lynn et al. 2015 back up their claims by citing several studies, including one indicating that students who feel they are supported by faculty are more likely to attend graduate school, and a study indicating higher rates of attrition among students with inadequate interactions with mentors. They also cite a study indicating that students' confidence in science proficiency and their likelihood to pursue a research career correlates with the number of mentor meetings. How long? In self-report surveys, students typically rate their UREs and cures highly. However, in a 2011 paper by Theory et al., the authors explained that continuous participation in a URE of three or more semesters is required for a student to build identity as a scientist. They also explained that short-term or patchy URE involvement could have negative outcomes, at least a year. It seems that many students need at least a year to gain an adequate appreciation of concepts and techniques used in a particular lab. Lynn et al. 2015 explained that during the first year of a URE, students spend most of their time setting up and conducting an experiment that lives little or no time devoted to understanding theory, philosophy, or concepts. Furthermore, students may not be adequately trained to interpret the results. Cures may be the cure. The level of student understanding of underlying theories and concepts may be higher in cures than in years, theory at L2012. Cures typically incorporate lectures and readings with the study of a particular research question. The added formal instruction may allow students to make connections with prior knowledge, spend more time studying the topic, and more opportunities to ask questions. However, without the adequate contact time between student and professor, the student may not view the professor as a mentor.
Today's guest is a professor in the Department of Biological Sciences at BGSU. He was formerly the director of the BGSU Marine Biology Lab from 1994 to 1999, the director of the Center for Neuroscience, Mind, and Behavior from 2000 to 2002, and the director of the University Honors Program from 2002 to 2012. Today's guest has been the director of the Laboratory for Sensory Ecology since 1994. The Laboratory for Sensory Ecology is a multidisciplinary lab that is interested in any questions concerning sensory behavior, evolution, physiology, and ecology. Most of their current projects are centered on understanding the role that chemical signals play in an organism's ecological role. They have projects that range from understanding the physics behind antenna design, predator avoidance, selection of habitats and mates, dominance hierarchies, and other social behaviors to analyzing the chemical composition of these signals. He's a former professor of mine, colleague, friend, and mentor. Please welcome Dr. Paul Moore. Welcome to the Teaching and Learning Professor, where you will find interviews of college faculty, staff, administrators, students, and alumni every week. Topics cover all aspects of formal and informal learning in higher education. The goal of this podcast is to help faculty understand the best ways to teach and for students to understand the best ways to learn. Your host is a teaching professor in the Department of Biological Sciences at Bowling Green State University. He's been faculty and the director of the BGSU Marine Lab since 1999. Now on to the show with your host, Dr. Matthew L. Parton. Can't go longer than that. That's the limit of the podcast. (laughs) All right. So, Paul Moore, welcome to. That was a bad introduction. Yeah, that's great. No, I'm I'm glad to be here and glad to talk about this stuff. So, I guess I I wanted to start out by asking you to talk a little bit about your background. Sure. Um, My undergraduate degree was University of Michigan, and uh, that was a really kind of a general uh, biological oceanography degree, which really focuses more on the physical processes uh, in the marine environment than the kind of the biological processes. And from there, I went straight from undergraduate to graduate school at Boston University, um, straight into the marine biology program. So I have a PhD in marine biology, uh, no master's degree, went straight through PhD. Um, and that was basically focusing more the biology than the physical processes in the ocean. So a lot of ecology and physiology. And then from there, I did a, a two-year postdoc to learn neuroscience, and then a two-year postdoc to do uh, more kind of neural physiology. And then uh, came here to BG as a as the marine biologist. Okay. And so you started off teaching marine biology classes yeah. and you actually ran the marine lab and yeah. that's when I came into the picture I show up <laughs> psychology major my senior year I took yep. a class from Bob Romans just uh, introductory biology took it was a required class for biology or psychology major and I was blown away I, wow. I was like wow this is so cool I was interested in animal behavior and in about how animals learn and the brain how their brain works but i was sick of looking at pictures with rats with those electrodes stuck in their heads <laughs> i was like this is not what i want to do with my life so yeah. i promptly changed my major and it already you know had been building aquariums kept octopus and all these corals and um that's when i i came into the marine lab and there's uh paul moore first year uh brand was, new. was that the first year it was your yeah it was your oh, first man. year yeah because cindy stong was here first actually i yeah. talked to her a few times 
Um, and then uh, it was, uh, I think there was somebody else for a year. There was. There was an interim uh, woman, and I can't remember her name. Yeah, she was she was interim, and then they they hired me to to take over in '94. Yeah, and and so I I was in the lab, and and I that was without a doubt the highlight of my college career. I didn't even, I didn't leave. I just stayed. You know, I I, I uh, it was I think it was that that trip to Woods Hole, Massachusetts that we took that, in 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 spring, and it was icy and cold. <laughs> yes, and, yeah, yeah everything was frozen solid, but. It was yeah. a it was a very good experience for me and oh that's great and and uh, just this is gonna sound funny I don't think most people probably won't relate to this but I but just walking into the library yeah like I was just like wow and like I could just feel it and my whole body is like this is this is where I want to be I want to read all these journals I want to read every book in this place right and it's it's an incredible library you know it's it's a uh, 120 years old and they have journal articles on marine organisms uh over those 120 years and it's so special that people actually um, pay money just to sit and and go through the journals throughout the whole summer um and and if you study marine biology woods hole is just kind of like one of the two to three meccas in the world to do marine biology so it was really special yeah, so it was an amazing place. It was a huge influence on me. Just visiting there for one week, I, I, I was I was thoroughly impressed. Yeah, and I so I guess I, I asked you to here today to talk a little bit about your publications and in. Um, I did a little bit of an introduction for you, which you haven't even heard yet, but uh, I, I introduced you, and I didn't talk about your publications, and you have a, a, a highly successful record publishing. Uh, both in journals and in books. And I guess I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the importance of each of those. So why is it important for a faculty, a professor, to publish in journals? What's the, the significance of that? And then also with books. And then maybe talk about the process a little bit. Yeah. Um, so we we make an argument uh, to a larger society that the knowledge we generate in science is a little bit stronger, a little bit better than other sources of knowledge. So if you're going to build a house, you're going to use scientific principles in building the house versus, uh, say, uh, consulting a witch doctor. And both areas have knowledge, but we claim in science that our knowledge is a little bit more tested, a little bit more truer than other areas of knowledge. The, the reason we can claim that is, is the publication process. So we can do science, and a lot of people can do science. You can do science in uh, your backyard, and, and, and you can be a hobbyist or something like that. But what is central to the process of science is once we do our research and we write it up, it gets sent out to experts, and those experts uh, kind of give us a thumbs up or a thumbs down on whether this is good research, good knowledge, good conclusion. So it's a ground truthing of what we do. Um, and through that ground truthing, then our work gets published, other people read it, and then even by citing that work or doing follow-up experiments is a second step of ground truthing whether that knowledge is worthwhile or moves us forward. Without publishing... Um, Anything can be considered science or knowledge. So that is almost uh, the foundational step for difference between science and non-science. It's the fact that our knowledge is exposed to people and they say, yes, that's good, that's, that's worthy of publication, or no, that's not worthy of publication. 
Um, so for a professor, if somebody's going to call themselves a scientist or a functional scientist, you have to publish. You have to expose your ideas to the general public of, of science and have them say, yeah, that's worthy. Go forward. We'll, we'll fund you. We'll, we'll uh, print your articles. We'll read your articles or cite your articles. Or in some situations, and I've had papers turned down too, where they say, this, uh, this is not this doesn't meet the standards of science, so we're not going to allow it to be published. We're not going to allow it to see the light of day and have other people read it. Without that kind of ground-truthing step, um, just about anything goes, and, and, and we can't really claim that our knowledge is better, that we don't have a better understanding of evolution or or physics or the universe or how to build bridges or, or uh, cars or things like that. So publishing uh, in in peer-reviewed journals and that's what that means is is peer-reviewed is our peers other scientists with the experts in the field will read your paper and say yeah that's a good paper and that's worthy of publication and um without boiling it down too simply that's kind of the currency of science is, is publication without publications you haven't done anything so the whole process just keeps people honest and keeps people from just making stuff up and trying to yeah, calling up the local newspaper. Yeah, hey, I cured cancer. I'm taking interviews. Yeah, exactly. Come on down. Yeah, you know, um, it's interesting. I was talking with a colleague. Um, I'm on an editorial board for a journal and talking to a colleague, and he basically said, if it's not published, it doesn't count. So that's a really hard line, and sometimes it's a little harsh, but it keeps people from making stuff up, and it keeps um, it allows us to check and review knowledge and make sure it goes through three or four steps before we acknowledge it and, and let people have that, you know, and use that knowledge to do further experiments or even release it to the public to newspapers. Um, so that's an important part. the The downside of that is um, the way that we write publications. It's not really accessible to a lot of people. Uh, it's kind of dry writing. It's very factual-based writing. We don't weave stories. Um, we, you know, like the old, old, old dragnet, you know, stick to the facts. Uh, so undergraduates, um, people outside of science have a hard time of reading and, and, and keeping track of that. Um, so there's a disconnect between between what we do as scientists and what we publish and what the public sees as an output of our knowledge. Uh, so that's why there's, there's popular culture debate on whether vaccines do this or that or whether climate change is real or things like that. But within the scientific community, there's no debate. We know that vaccines don't cause autism. We know that climate change is real. We know that the oceans are warming. We know that the, the poles are melting. We know these types of things, evolution. We know evolution is real. But there's this disconnect because our papers we write for peer review and we don't write it for public consumption. So that's where other types of publications like popular science books or news articles written by scientific journalists or even scientists um, translate that knowledge. Um, we uh, have a little bit more leeway of, of just sticking to the facts. We want to weave stories, truthful stories, but we want to weave them in such a way that somebody can understand them and it applies to their life. So uh, more recently, I've gotten into writing some popular science books, and I have two of them out um, that kind of explain – the first one explains chemical senses and how animals and humans use chemical senses because I call it kind of a ninja sense. We're unaware of it. 
uh, as humans, we're visual and auditory animals. We tend to ignore our sense of smell or taste until we're eating a meal. But we use it all the time to make judgments of people and, and uh, really kind of navigate our world, but we just kind of ignore it. So there's a whole bunch of research in there, probably over about 500 papers that I read and had to synthesize and combine and then write stories that would capture people's imagination to kind of inform them on what we know and what we don't know. And then the second book was sort of a, a written take of, of James Cameron's uh, Avatar where I'm trying to put the reader inside the mind of, a, of an organism and, and I cover uh, everything from, uh, from octopi to, uh, to osprey to, uh, to rats to a whole bunch of different animals to uh, dolphins and seals. And I explain how they view their world through their senses. And now that's not stuff we cover in scientific publications. It's not peer-reviewed. But it it contains factual information uh, woven together with stories and popular culture and popular information. So it makes that knowledge more accessible for people. What are the titles of those two books? Yeah, the first book is called uh, The Hidden Power of Smell. And uh, it's really interesting that uh, we really underplay our sense of smell. So The Hidden Power of Smell is the first one. And the second one just came out this year. It's called uh, Into the Elusive World with an I. Uh, and elusive is a hidden world. So anybody who has a pet, you take your dog for a walk and they sniff at each other, each tree and in, in, in at the ground. Um, and what I'm explaining is how these animals are gathering information about the world. Or if you have a cat, the cat will rub up against you and rubbing up against you does really certain kinds of things and the fact that cats can see at night. So into the elusive world or the way that these animals view the world that we don't have access to. And hopefully by reading these books, people can understand what animals are doing and why they're doing it. And what is the publication process? So I guess first I want to start with the journal. Yeah. Right. So, uh, in order for a professor to be tenured, they're going to have to go through it's it's incredibly rigorous amount of uh, work they have to do to to get to reach that level. Could you talk a little bit about what it takes to get just one article published? Yeah. Uh, and depending on the field, uh, we can start with the planning process, right? So you get together with the, your your colleagues, your graduate students, your undergraduate students, and you talk about a protocol, and you have to have the right kind of controls in place, and you have to make sure the data is collected properly. But we can jump to the, the publication process where you have the data and you have graphs made. And pub, uh, almost all scientific publications have kind of four aspects. They have an introduction, and that's where you take your results and, and you talk about what problem exists you're going to answer. And basically, we talk about a gap in knowledge. So the introduction says, this is the gap in knowledge. This is what we know. This is what's missing, and we're going to answer that. And the methods section is written such that anybody could read your, your project and, and reproduce the project. So if we wanted to check and make sure the data is correct, somebody else in a completely different university or a different field could, could replicate your study and get the same results. The third section is called the results section. And that's where we just put the, put the raw data out here. So here's what we found. Here's the averages. Here's some stats on it. And then the discussion is where we take that data and we kind of plug that gap in knowledge. We explain what we found and how we've changed the nature of knowledge and understanding the world based on our results. So once that's written, 
and it can be anywhere from 15 to 30 to 40 pages, uh, that is sent off to a journal. And then the journal editor gets that paper, they read it, and many journals can reject it right there. If the if the head editor says, no, I don't like this, it doesn't fit, or it's n- there's not enough quality, they reject it right away. If it makes it through that stage, it goes to an associate editor who then finds two to three experts in the field and sends them the paper. This is about a month into the process. So the uh, month after the main editor gets it, it gets sent out to review. Then these experts in the field will read the paper, critique it, and they will say, this is good, this part's bad, uh, I don't like this, the data don't support this conclusion. And at that, uh, those experts in the outside field make recommendations to either to accept the paper, um, reject the paper, those are the two extremes, or in some way modify the paper. And that could be modified by either going back and collecting new data or supporting data or just rewriting things or doing a new analysis. That then gets sent back to the, the, the researcher, and they have the choice of either revising the paper or realizing it's not going to get published. They can just set the data aside or try to augment it. Uh, if they rewrite it, it goes through that process again. So it can go through that review process where the head editor reads it and then the associate editor sends it out to experts, and then they take those opinions and come to some conclusion two to three times on a paper, and that could take anywhere from two months on very quick journals up to uh, a year on really slow journals. So it's a really rigorous pro- uh, process, and, and you can certainly respond to reviewers, but um, the editors know that your responses are biased. You want to get the paper out, and these experts are supposed to be unbiased experts. That it's either publishable or not, or you need to make these changes. And then once that occurs, uh, and once it gets accepted, then there's another couple of months where they they turn it into a publishable PDF, and they can add images in, uh, and they make it publishable, and then it either comes out in a hard copy or it goes online. A lot of things are going online now. So that's kind of that entire process. And so this is a, a, on top of... So you have a lab, you've got several graduate students that you oversee, and you set up projects and you decide, hey, I'm going to do some project or start some, look at, try to answer some question. So how long for data collection? A year? Months? We, um, we have a system where we do a lot of field work. So we collect all most of our data in the field. So I would say from the start, from the, the day I first sit with the, a couple of students and we come up with ideas to the moment it gets submitted is about a year. Um, to the moment that it appears in print, which is kind of the final stage, uh, could be anywhere from six months to another year. So the process could be anywhere from two years in total to maybe a year, year and a half in total. And so about how many publications do you think, on average, most faculty? It's probably going to vary from uh, It varies from field to field, uh, and it varies from lab to lab. Uh, Most... uh, this is probably dangerous things to make. Uh, most most scientist colleagues I, I know outside of Bowling Green publish at least one a year, if not two or three a year. Um, now, it varies across institutions. So if you're at a place, a, a research one place like Harvard, um, maybe 80% of your time is research and 20% is teaching. At a place like Bowling Green, it's about 50-50. 
And say if you go to a um, couple of my, my former graduate students at Saginaw Valley or Grand Valley, they have 80% teaching, 20% research. So if, if you're at Harvard, you're expected to probably get five or six publications a year. And if you're at Grand Valley or something like that, maybe one a year, one every two years or something like that would be the expectation. Okay. And so publishing a book... How is that weighted? I guess uh, I yeah, maybe I don't want to go this way. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fine. So um, that is also really field dependent. So I have a good colleague over in political science. And they will not get tenure without books, and the expectation is about three books for tenure, an additional three or four for full professor. Uh, I think uh, because of this peer process, the peer review process, in this in, in this kind of gatekeeping of good knowledge versus bad knowledge. Books here um, are not valued for tenure and, and not really valued for promotion. And I can understand that because we're supposed to be scientists and, and, and we can't just publish anything. It has to be good. And as you publish books, um, there's no really deep peer review process. So for me to publish a book, uh, for my, my two books, uh, I had to write about a 20-page proposal that described what I was going to do, had some example chapters in it, um, the gap in the field that's missing. Is there another book? What are the competing books? Uh, where is this book going to be uh, used? And that gets sent to the publisher, and the publisher will, very similar to a, a journal, will send that out to a couple of experts. What they're not um, reviewing is the quality of information because the book is not written yet. They're reviewing whether this person has the credentials to write this kind of a book and whether this book would be useful within the field. Um, so there's not this gate check. So after I wrote my books and sent it to the publisher, they're going, great, they turned it into a publication. So nobody is checking each chapter and making sure I'm accurate. Um, this might be a little bit different on a textbook. That definitely gets checked. Mm -hmm. um, but popular science books won't be weighted as much for tenure here. Okay. I guess what I would like to talk about now is undergraduate research. Yeah. So this is something that I've always been really big in pushing on getting our students to can figure out some way to do some undergraduate research. There are some few courses here and there that have uh, – uh, a lot of undergraduate research embedded into them. But you took all of our biology 2040 labs. Yeah. So this is a required course for every single biology major and a lot of other people that aren't biology majors. And you incorporated a undergraduate research component into the lab. Yeah. And I was thrilled when I heard you do that. I, and, <laughs> That's and good. I guess I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So the students from day one to the end of the course go through all that process that we talked about, even writing a paper. So uh, they meet with groups. We give them broad ideas. So like climate change or um, drought or uh, pollution. And then students brainstorm about ideas. They come up with, uh, uh, they narrow those brainstormed ideas down and then they come up with something they want to work on. They write a proposal. They write an equipment list. We check that. They uh, figure out what animals they want to use, what kind of questions they want to answer, what equipment we need. they need. We give that to them. We help them set that up. They collect the data themselves, uh, spend about six, you know, four to six weeks collecting data. 
We help them analyze it. We help them graph it. Uh, and then they write it up, and we kind of peer review. We check it. We give them feedback. They rewrite it. They reanalyze it. And then at the end of the semester, they turn in papers, and they have a big poster presentation. So that whole process is designed to mimic what master students, what PhD students, what faculty members do from start to end so the students can understand how we generate knowledge and how we come to conclusions within the science. Oh, that's great. Um, so... I, I'm, I guess I'm wondering how, how common is it for a l introductory lab class like that to incorporate that level of undergraduate research? It's pretty rare. And, and the company I, I wrote the lab manual with has been taking me around to universities and, and trying to implement this because they do have research components. And I think components are a really important word where they have one or two weeks where they let students do projects, but the projects are really limited in structure and, and scope. We throw that out. We say, it's your ideas. This is your project. You own the ideas. You come up with it and you collect the data. And to really uh, have students understand how we as scientists know what we know, um, instead of just because you know we, we said something or it was in a book, is not good enough. They have to know how we collect data, how we filter through bad data and good data, and how we draw conclusions. So it's pretty rare. But I think if you're going to be a biology major, it's essential that you get some type of research experience. So why not start them at day one, um, right in the very first class or the second class they take in biology so they can understand what research is, how they can do it, and hopefully they can get comfortable enough that they can then walk into a faculty member's office and say, man, I, I like what you do. Can I do research with you? Or at least feel confident enough that they can do research, they can collect data, and they know what that means. That's a kind of a scary process for undergraduates if they don't have any experience for that. Right. Throughout your life, you've taken many, many classes, and beyond your college experiences, you have taught yourself how to do many, many different things along the way. Yeah. Uh, I guess I'm, what I would like to know is, is what is your learning process? Like, so how, how do you think you learn best? Yeah, so I, I've talked a lot with my graduate students over the last three or four years about this, and it, I think it comes down almost to a single word or concept, and that is failure. Um, you have to be risky enough to try things and understand the first thing, the first time you try it, you're going to fail at it. Um, when when you're when you're a toddler and you try walking, you're going to fall over a lot, but by Falling over, you're learning what not to do, and you learn where to put your your hands and your legs and your arms. So when we do research, when I teach my graduate students or when I'm reading things, um, I try out concepts, and I try out where the concepts fail and where they work. So why does it fail? And you can't be really afraid of that failure process. And when we do science, half the projects we do just fail. And and that means you're learning something. Okay, that doesn't work. We can't ask that question, so let's do something else. And I think, unfortunately, we have a, a, an environment where students are afraid to kind of take risks and fail. And, and by doing so, they kind of limit their own learning process. Yeah, so you know, you're familiar with uh, Carol Dweck's growth mindset and fixed mindset. and yeah, yeah. So I guess you're kind of advocating the, the growth mindset where failures is not a bad thing. Yeah. It's something that's just 
part normal part of the learning process. And we we just talked about that this morning in, in lab meeting. Uh, this growth versus fixed mindset, and um, there's so much research and there's so much uh, anecdotal evidence that shows that failure and learning from that failure is essential process of growth. And uh, yet on the flip side, if you fail and then you never try again, or you fail and you kind of pull within yourself or you don't take any more risks, that's the antithesis of learning, antithesis of growth. And Carol's work, that book is an excellent book. Students should read it. You know, if you take a risk and you say, I'm going to grow by failing and learning and failing and learning, um, it's essential. So, I, do you have any advice for our undergraduate students? So many of the students listening to this podcast are going to be my Biology 2000 students who are brand new to the university, trying to figure out how to make things work and get, get through um, managing their time. Do you have any advice for these students? Yeah. Um, it, it's hard advice, I think, because faculty are intimidating. Uh, we sit in our offices or, or we have these doctors in front of our name or, or we stand up in front of 200 students and we kind of be, we can be very intimidating. We have all this knowledge and experience. If, if there's one piece of advice that undergraduates, particularly for your, your biology students is walk into our office and talk with us. Um, a lot of us got into this, this kind of gig or job to teach students. And if I have a student come in my office and, and, and just says, I, I want to learn from you. Oh man, that's great. That's why we're here. Uh, so I would suggest your students, if something interests them, find a faculty member and just walk into their office and ensure the faculty member may say, my lab's full. I'm busy. I can't help you take a chance. Uh, if they don't, if they don't take you in, somebody else will. And just keep knocking on doors or walking into people's offices to say, um, I'm really interested in your research. Can I work with you? Can I learn from you? Can I do research with you? And that's going to be the difference between a really good undergraduate degree at Bowling Green and um, a Bachelor's of Science in Biology. What about advice for a faculty member who is considering integrating some sort of undergraduate research into their course? It's... um, you know, it's interesting. So when we made this switch in, in 2040, um, it's it, it, we took a lot of risk because we had set labs and they worked and, and students, we knew how to grade it. We knew what we were doing. When we made the switch, we didn't know what we were doing. And, and going back to that failure, we, we could have failed. And yeah, we did. We did a lot of things wrong. And I would suggest for faculty members to take the chance to give up some of that control of where that knowledge comes from and give it to the students and empower them to find questions and find ways to answer knowledge themselves. So if we can kind of switch our mindset of instead of being professors of knowledge to facilitators of learning, I think um, it's easier to bring undergraduate research in and it's easier to be learners with students and engage with them in projects and and, uh, students love what we're doing. They love the freedom it gives them to ask the questions they want to ask, to do the projects they want to do, instead of um, a series of canned labs that just make them follow recipes. And and take the chance, and, and it, it might not work, you might have to modify it. This I think year five, and we're still kind of making changes. But take the chance and, and see if you can jumpstart students' careers. 
Could you repeat the names of your books? Yeah, sure. The, the first one is um, The Hidden Power of Smell, and it talks about smell and taste. And the second was Into the Elusive World. And where can we find those? Uh, Amazon. Okay. Amazon. That's where and, I get everything. One of my graduate students is really excited because she saw it at Target. So I guess Amazon <laughs> and Target. So, Well, Dr. Paul Moore, thank you so much for coming out here. I really do appreciate that. It's a great pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right. Thanks for listening to The Teaching and Learning Professor with Dr. Matthew L. Parton. If you like our show and want to know more, check out his webpage at blogs.bgsu.edu slash teachingandlearningprofessor. And please leave a review on iTunes, TuneIn, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you retrieve your podcasts.